This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Close Up. This is Kelly Carter, and it's my first episode. I'm a Hollywood reporter for ESPN's The Undefeated, but I've been covering this space for a really long time. You know, doing this podcast is special to me because I wanted to go deep with film creators. I love hearing what makes people tick and, and what ultimately leads them to creation. And hey, what a time for this podcast to debut. It's Oscar nomination week, and this is actually one of my favorite weeks of the year, and here's why. The prognostication can now actually begin. This is kind of like Selection Sunday if you're a college basketball fan, except over here, there's a lot more glitter, a lot more glam, and it's a little less sweaty than the basketball court. Well, if you're an Oscar nominee, there's a little bit of sweat. So my guest today is actor Peter Dinklage. You guys probably know him best from Game of Thrones, but you should get to know, honestly, his best performance so far in his new film, Cyrano. I'm excited to let you guys in on that conversation, but here's how it's going to go down every week on this podcast. I'm going to let you inside of my group chat. As Hollywood reporters, we say a lot of stuff and we know a lot of stuff. And I know that my phone has been blowing up since the nominees were announced, and I'm sure theirs are too. So today I'm bringing my friends into this conversation, Film Awards editor for Variety Magazine, Clayton Davis, and award-winning entertainment journalist, KJ Matthews. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me, Kelly. You know, last time we were all together in real life, we were on a shuttle bus in Atlanta heading to a studio to talk classic throwback oh, films. Yeah. Exactly. But now the games have officially begun. Oscar nominations came out this week. So I want to start here. What were your biggest surprises? Uh, Clay, let's start with you on that one. Uh, overperformance of Power of the Dog getting 12 nominations. Uh, Lady uh. Gaga, even though I predicted it, or uh, was talking about <laughs> it rather, uh, her missing best actress and uh, Latinos having a really good day. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. KJ, what about yourself? You know, I know no one's talking about this on Twitter. So, you know, if no one's talking mm -hmm. about it on Twitter, nothing matters, right? But <laughs> right. I was actually surprised that John uh, Abernothal did not get uh, nominated in the best supporting actor category, uh, category that mm. is, for his performance in King Richard as the coach, uh, Rick Matchy. I thought he did a phenomenal job. Uh, I thought that was yeah. a long shot. But I thought yeah. maybe, just maybe, he would be nominated. That's interesting. You know, I, I don't know if I was necessarily surprised by anything because I feel like I've trained myself to not be surprised about much. But the thing that I probably was most pleasantly surprised about was the diversity. I know we spent a lot of times talking about um, the actor categories and, and even the film categories too, but I also love seeing some of the diversity behind the scenes too, you know, in best song and also in, in executive producers. I thought that was important too, but let's, let's talk about that because, you know, I remember Clay specifically last year, we were talking about the lack of Latinx representation. And the mm -hmm. one thing that we kind of agreed on was had West Side Story been in the mix, 
that we probably would be having a different conversation, which brings us to 2022. And we are having a different conversation. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, we had a lot of Latinx films this year, you know, aside from West Side Story and obviously getting Ariana DeBose, who looks really good right now to win an Academy mm -hmm. Award. She'll be the second Latina to ever win an acting Oscar, period. Uh, the first one was her co-star, Rita Moreno, who played Anita in the 1961 version. So if you play Anita, you win Oscars. I like to be in America. Okay, by me. But what I'm really interested in is just kind of what does it look like going forward? We had a record number of, of people of color nominated last year. Nine out of the 20 acting slots were occupied mm. by people of color. This year, not as much. Um, I want to see the year that we're all hitting all cylinders everyone's winning, you know, because it's always like one step forward, a few steps back. We don't have a black woman nominated in director yet, you know, still waiting for that. There's a lot of firsts that we're still chasing. Yeah. KJ, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I always try to ask myself, how will we gauge in Hollywood where we have really reached a peak level of diversity. Yeah. And every year for the last couple of years, we've been doing this Oscar so wide. And then of course there wasn't enough diversity with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Mm. And I just don't know what it's going to take. Um, I'm glad that we have, you know, some representation in the best actor category with Will Smith and Denzel Washington. And of course with Anjanou Ellis and in best supporting and Ariana. Um, but it's still not enough yet. I, I just, I want to get to uh, a point in Hollywood where Every single major category um, is represented by people of color, women of color, um, and yeah. we don't even have to talk about this anymore. Yeah, you know, and I feel like the thing that was most disappointing to me is this year in particular, we didn't have a large field to choose right. from specifically with that best actress right. category. So to me, and I think to you guys too, that means that the problem really starts well before we get to award season. We need for studios to greenlight things. We need for mm -hmm. financiers to put the money into making films so that we have a broader base of things to choose from and to pick from. And I don't know what it's going to take for that to actually happen, but I do feel like there is some progress because you look at someone like Gina Prince-Bythewood, right. who 20 years ago made her debut film Love and Basketball, but it took her about 18 years to get caught up to the big leagues right. mm -hmm. with The Old Guard, which went on Netflix. It did very well. And now she finally got a big budget to make The Woman King, which is coming out in the fall. So maybe this time next year we get to talk about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you guys yeah. think? You know, the thing is, too, even if we get all of that, Kelly, which is exactly what we need, you are, you're so on point with all of those assessments. We still need all of the Academy members to be willing to watch this breadth of films, not just your yeah. friends' films, not just the films you're familiar with, not just the films that you're comfortable with, but films that you've never heard of. And getting them to watch all those films is another <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, That's very true. Like ahead, uh, KJ saying, you know, it, it's about all of us winning consistently, mm -hmm. but the, you nailed it, Kelly. It's Oscars are always the scapegoat. The problem is an Oscar. The mm. problem is Hollywood. Mm. We can't get we yeah. can't get mad that the Academy didn't choose the one of two black women that were actually in right. the in the running this year. Like I want like yeah. I want like a bench. I want a deep bench of choices. Yeah, I agree. 
And you know, Clay, you said something that's so important. And I want to use a few seconds to have, to have all of us kind of pop our collar a little bit because we want to talk about campaigning to voters. This is the first season that all three of us are voters in Ooh. major award shows in Hollywood. We are not voters. We're not voters in the Academy Awards. Mm. So don't be, you know, sending us really mean tweets. <laughs> we had nothing to do with this this better mm. nominees. Right. But, you know, we, we vote in Critics' Choice and Golden Globes. And that feels kind of special but we also are now on the receiving end of campaigning let's right. talk about that because we know that these studios and companies spend upwards of 15 million dollars oh. um hiring consultants to help campaign and get the get the job done uh clay you and i were talking a little bit about this earlier this week Let's try and break down, and KJ too, of course, let's try and break down what, what a campaign actually looks like. Like, what do you see from someone who really wants to win one of these awards? I mean, besides, you know, tastemaker events, you know, having parties yeah. just to rub elbows, traveling to various festivals, and then comes, like, yeah. swag. So, <laughs> yeah, it becomes a lot of, like, you know, what is cool? What what do you get? You know, I remember, I remember the Roma pillow. I remember... <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 like, like, and this doesn't, this isn't unique just, just to film TV. Like, I got a Wu Tang uh, record player like earlier this year. Like, they, okay. they, they do send stuff out to get people right. to notice yeah. you and to, and to think of that. But, but I think, I think what, what you really you, uh, need to fix. What we're trying to fix here, we, I think we need some campaign reform. Think of it like, a, like yeah. presidential election. Exactly. You know, if it's about the movies, let it be about the movies, not, you know, what you got and where you got it mm -hmm. or who you know. Yeah. Let's dissect Will Smith, for example. Yeah. He's nominated for an Academy Award for uh, excellent work in King Richard. Uh, being a Two Academy dad. Awards, by the way. And Two. Right. Two Academy because also as an executive producer, mm -hmm. let's let's put that out there, too, because that that also is important. This is the second year in a row that uh, a black man behind the camera is being nominated in that specific category. The most strongest, the most powerful, the most dangerous creature on this whole earth. It's a woman who know how to thank. So the thing is, Will Smith wanted this award and he made it known that he mm -hmm. wanted this nomination. We saw him doing more interviews than he has ever done over the course of his career. This man released a memoir, told you that Stockard Channing was his crush. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was putting everything out there, you know, to really let you know that he's a man of the people. He is that that Bel Air, Fresh Prince of Bel Air spinoff that's coming out soon to Peacock. So he's really making himself accessible. What do you guys make of that? Do you think that there's something to how you campaign ultimately resulting in you getting that nomination and maybe even the win? I, I think that used to be the case pre-Harvey Weinstein. I think that okay. he changed things and I think that the pandemic changed things. I don't know if you remember how there used to be the whisper campaign in Hollywood. And you probably remember this, Clayton, where people would whisper and put out kind of negative things about you. It'd be rumors and innuendos mm -hmm. to kind of like thwart your chances of actually being nominated. Um, and that happened up until about the Weinstein thing. And then mm -hmm. I think now that he's removed and now that we're in a pandemic and things are so virtual and different, things are changing. But 
mark my word, campaigning is still out there. And even though people are okay. saying, we don't think it's ethical, we think you should just let the work speak for itself. If you're a great actor or you have a great picture, it should just speak for itself. The reality is Hollywood has always been in bed with Hollywood. <laughs> There's always been campaigning, whether it's publicly or it's not public. You know, people will always campaign to get their project awards. Yeah. To, to kind of tie a nice tidy bow on the on the campaign conversation, I will say that for me, I think hands down the best campaign was 20 years ago um, and it was Holly Berry in Monsters Ball. Mm. And that campaign was, it's been 74 years. This has never happened. A black woman has never won best actress at the awards. Let's make history and history, of course, was made 20 years ago. Not only Holly Berry winning that award, and, and also let's say that another black actress has not won that award since then, right. but Denzel Washington won an Oscar that year, and Sidney Poitier, the late great Sidney mm -hmm. Poitier, won an honorary award. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to do the most difficult thing that you can possibly do during Oscar nominations week, but I'm going to do it. Dang it. Anyway, predictions for best actor actress and best picture kj let's start with you on that okay so best actor it's will smith's night okay it's will smith uh for king richard uh when it comes to the best actress i, I think it could be nicole kitman or a toss-up between uh kristen stewart for spencer i really really do um but i'm leaning mm. towards nicole kitman although if i had my fan favorite i would say it would be kristen mm. stewart for spencer Okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. Okay, so best picture. You know, I hate to say this because I know they're the fan favorite and everybody's been saying they've got the most nominations, but I really do believe it's going to be the power of the dog. But mm. I would love it to be King Richard. Um, but I do okay. think that it's going to be the power of the dog. In fact, I think they might have a sweep this particular award season uh, when it comes to the Oscars, in my opinion. Okay. Okay, we're going to remember that. Clayton, how about yourself? Uh, Will Smith is pretty easy to call in Best Actor. Uh, actually, mm -hmm. I do I do predictions one one week after Oscars happen for the very next year. And I had Will Smith okay. last year. So this is a 12-month ordeal of getting to this moment. I feel good about him. Uh, and I can confirm that because you put it on your Instagram. I remember. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Document it. Got document those uh, those bragging rights. Uh, with actress though, that that's really wide open. Okay. I honestly think it could be Kristen Stewart or or Kidman. I think Jessica Chastain could pull it off in the end too. Mm. Like I think that's definitely mm. on the table. She hasn't won before. No, she hasn't. Just this is her third nomination. You know, Coleman, Kidman, they've won. Stewart's the first nom. You know, we get we can see how this works out. Yeah. And then picture. My gut is saying power of the dog, but I will say, mm. and people don't know this, preferential ballot, the way that you vote for best picture you rank the movies. So it's not about what's Whoa. the most loved, it's about what's the most wow. liked. Yeah. And twos and threes come a long way. That's why I think Belfast and King Richard, dangerous Ooh. To, to possibly do it. Ooh, I like that. Well, for me, um, it's gonna be Will Smith because like I said, Will, Will has been campaigning for this, but even long before his campaign began, I was talking with the director, Marcus Ronaldo Green, and he was telling me how Will took a post-it note for every scene, even the scenes that he wasn't in and, and King Richard and broke it down. And importantly, 
he told me this and Anjanu Ellis told me this, that he showed up to every rehearsal and read through, which an actor of his caliber and his stature, you guys know better than me. They yeah. don't they don't show up right. for that kind of stuff. Yes, but he did it because he wanted to make sure every ounce of this film was delivered on, you know, the way that he saw that vision as executive producer. So I feel like you, you work so hard mm-hmm. for it, buddy. You need to win that award. Right. And um, Best Actress, I think, Nicole Kidman. And I would love to actually write in Macbeth as, um, <laughs> as as best picture, but since since Macbeth since Macbeth did not get uh, nominated, I feel like I'm gonna go with West Side Story. Look, uh, Steven Spielberg has been doing this for now 51 years. He is beloved in this industry. People love the original film. They love the remake. Mm, I say, why not? Not bad. But I had another one. But before I tell you the other one, I want to hear what you guys love that you didn't that you didn't see get a nomination. It can be a film or it can be a person. Clayton. Uh, my favorite film of the year was Come On, Come On with Joaquin Phoenix. Let me ask you a question. Why does everything have to be like this kind of weird eccentric thing that you do? I know, but why not just do something normal? Like What's everything normal? in your real life. What's normal? Okay, fine. Good point. I'm always reluctant to say what my favorite film of the year is because typically nine times out of ten it doesn't get nominated for anything. <laughs> so probably you don't want me to love your film as much as I do. Uh, but yeah, I, I was disappointed to see that go uh, zero. And also Tessa Thompson in passing. She mm. has my heart forever. KJ, you're up. Uh, just one. Mahershala Ali for Swan Song. And what about me? Waking up in this place waiting for you to pull the plug, being told I'm not me. Because you're not me. You are not me! Mm. Swan Song was done so well. Mahershala Ali just yeah. owned the screen with that and just no recognition. It was very surprising to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, I said I love Macbeth. I also really love Zola. When I first saw it at Sundance, I thought that was amazing. Um, but you know... I thought that Cyrano might have done a little bit better. You know, that's the film that's starring Peter Dinklage, who is my guest on this episode, and you'll hear from him Uh later on the show. But to explain to the listening audience, that film is based on a play, Cyrano de Bergerac, which is about a man who is a beautiful poet, but he has a big, ugly nose. He falls in love with the very beautiful Roxanne, who thinks that she can't love him back, or he thinks that she can't love him back. So he decides to write love letters from the very handsome Christian to Roxanne, In this film, of course, there is no big ugly nose, but it's Cyrano's size. That's the thing that makes him feel a little bit insecure and unworthy of Roxanne's love. And Peter Dinklage, of course, is four and a half feet tall. And to boot, it's a musical, which is my all-time favorite. I love a good musical. So Peter Dinklage did not get the nomination, even though a lot of people thought that maybe this might have been his year to get it. There are all kinds of reasons why people actually don't get nominated. Um, I think the reason why this year is because it was such a crowded field. How about you two? What did you guys think about um, his work in Cyrano? I mean, I think it's the best work he's done in film uh yet in his yeah. career that already has a lot of great performances uh i think there were two things that were that were probably not in his favor one a late release because the movie's still like kind of being released right now and <laughs> two and two and you touch on it musicals musicals walk in the door with their back against the wall people will say i don't like musicals and i don't like horror films and it's really hard to convert those people mm-hmm. and we already had it we, we already had two other musicals in the conversation, yeah. West Side Story and Tick, Tick, yeah. Boom. So I think yeah. that was just, you know, not working out for him. 
Next time, though. Next time, Peter, hang in there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Peter made news, of course, uh, recently criticizing the new Snow White reboot. Uh, Full disclosure, Disney is ABC's parent company. But but Peter Dinklage, you know, said that it was a backward story about seven dwarves living in a cave. Mm. Actually, he makes the same point. In my conversation with him, Disney, of course, has responded by saying uh, to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film, we are taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with members of the dwarfism community. Now, we've seen Hollywood portray stereotypes of all kinds for a really long time, and we've seen some directors, you know, try to do their best, even if they're not part of the community that they're actually, you know, documenting in film, bring on culturally appropriate consultants. What can studios or directors do to portray people correctly? Um, When studios are greenlighting things or there are writers that are writing things or directors that are directing things, make sure you have everyone in the room Hmm. from that part of the community of the story (laughs) in which you are telling. It's pretty, it's always been pretty simple. Just make sure the table has a lot of different people in it. It's just really going above and beyond to make sure that you're representing accurately what you're, you know, the story that you're telling. And everyone needs to do that. And studio executives are the ones that, you know, disobey this law the most. They just, and that's why they keep stepping into it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we need to have more people of color in the, you know, in all of these slots. So uh, it would take care of things. But I think that you're right, Clay. We do need more representation there. But I think that people shouldn't be writing, producing, directing anything about communities they don't know about unless they have people of those communities on board with that project. That's just the bottom line. That's just the bottom line. I love that. And I love both of you guys. (laughs) I love you. Thank you. Thank you both to KJ Matthews and Clayton Davis for being here, which is my very first episode. Congratulations to Superstar. (laughs) Congratulations. Go Kelly. So proud of you. Thank you. Thank you guys. We're going to take a quick break, but my conversation with Peter Dinklage comes on the other side. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Peter Dinklage always wanted to be an actor ever since he was growing up in his native New Jersey. He and his brother used to put on rock music puppet shows that was soundtracked by The Who. But, you know, it took a long time for him to actually make a breakthrough in Hollywood, in part because he wanted to be very intentional about the roles that he chose and not rely on these stereotypical parts that normally are saved for actors his size. 
So I've always loved his work, but I really found myself marveling at what he turned in in Game of Thrones. I know I'm not the only person in the Game of Thrones hive. Uh, you know, he obviously was Tyrion Lannister, who was a sarcastic, funny, clever, witty member of the Lannister family. And his size informed the character, but it didn't overwhelm it. And I really love that part of it. And that also lends itself quite naturally into the work that we're talking about right now, Cyrano. That's his new film. But long before Cyrano, and certainly long before Game of Thrones, Peter Dinklage's debut on the big screen was Living in Oblivion, a 1995 low-budget indie film about the process of making a low-budget indie film. Peter, I would love to have you take me back to 1995. I want to remind people that are listening that that's when you first started out. What were your expectations of your career in Hollywood at that time? I started in 1995, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I had dreams of Hollywood since 1969, but 1995, yeah. Well, I, I, I had no idea what I was doing, Kelly. I was young and silly and uh, we were living in a very different time back in the 90s films and the ability to see all of them and the amount of films being made was so different than what it is today. Um, you know, I, I, I moved to New York I went to school up in Vermont and I moved straight down into to New York City just to, to do theater, really, and work with my, my friends and put on plays and, and movie people did movies. I didn't really ever consider myself. I loved movies. I, I lived and breathed going to the movies, but it never was really on my radar, truly. And then I got this call and went in and read for Living in Oblivion and the director gave it to me and I got lucky because it was a really funny movie and, and with great, great actors. Mm. Why does my character have to be a dwarf? It doesn't have to be a dwarf. <laughs> then why is he? Is that the only way you can make this a dream? Put a dwarf in it? No, Tito. I... Have you ever had a dream with a dwarf in it? Do you know anyone who's had a dream with a dwarf in it? No! It allowed me to sort of to express what I've always wanted to express, my, uh, my, my outrage um, in terms of movies and, and what they do with how they utilize people my size and, and sort of make them dream characters. And, and I was just, and, but while having great humor to it as well. Um, so it was, a, it was a definitely a, a really great start. Um, and then the slog continued and it, you know, it's, it's, whose work was few and far between, and but I, I stuck it out and worked hard. One thing that feels so connective to your story that I'm so accustomed to talking with other actors about is otherness. Otherness and the refusal, in a lot of cases, to raise your hands to do work that you feel plays into a stereotype, whether that be an accent that in the past has been used to poke fun of people or a refusal to portray like a one-dimensional character, like a certain type of Black man. And I've read that, that that's been a line in the sand for you. The question that I normally ask is, how challenging was that for you to say no, especially starting out in your career? Because I imagine that you were getting some of those offers coming your way. Right. I mean, if we can't, blast stereotypes in entertainment where where can we blast them you know what i mean what we, we what we are given in movies and and just as performers we're is we're given a a golden ticket to do anything we want uh in storytelling 
with characters to tell any story. And, and if we continue just because something makes money, I mean, it is a business to perpetuate stereotypes based on what is successful or what, we're, you know, that's up to us to, to change it. It's on me um, to, to not go in as a spokesperson, but just to make choices that change the game. I mean, for, for a century now, we've been inundated with romantic love stories have been the domain of beautiful white people, mm. tall, handsome men, beautiful women. And are that, is that the only love story? You know, that's the stereotype that we've perpetuated yeah. for a hundred years now. And it's just, it just makes me sad because so many love stories aren't being told. The world is starting to, starting to recognize that now. Um, many people have always recognized that, but it's what we put out there. And, and uh, I just love what I do for a living and I never want to tarnish it with something I'm uncomfortable with or feel exploited about. I'm not politically correct. I just know what doesn't feel right. Mm. I don't want to lose my sense of humor about things. I own who I am, mm. but that's me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can make fun of myself. We all can. But as soon as you start to be made fun of, that's, that's, that's the difference. Yeah. You know. And I think that there's some kind of fun poetic justice in that, that I, I have to imagine that you've had to think about this over the years, because I think that a lot of people identify your amazing breakthrough moment was in 2003 and Elf, you know, there's that really great scene with Will Ferrell. And, and I wonder- Another one, sort of like a live in a living moment. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know you had elves working here. Oh, boy, you're, you're hilarious, my friend. Does Santa know that you left the workshop? You know, we're all laughing our heads off. Did you have to borrow a reindeer to get down here? Buddy, go back to the base pay. Jackweed, I get more action in a week than you've had your entire life. I've got houses in LA, Paris, and Vail. I wondered if that felt validating to you on, on some level, because even though maybe you weren't trying to make a statement with that role, I think you made a statement with that role and people paid attention to it. Right. And with humor, mm -hmm. uh, which I think really reaches everybody. I think, uh, no, it was great because, um, yeah, a lot of young people see that movie. Children come up to me on the street. Um, they, they, they remember that film and they love it. And it's so beautiful and sweet. And, and it leaves an impression with them, yeah. you know, about all of that stuff that we were talking about. And, you know, as much as I don't set out to, 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 to do that, if it's if it's a residual of what I've done, then then fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So Peter, please allow me to geek out for a moment if I can. Um, in the summer of 2020, I had time. We all had time. We found ourselves with all this time on our hands. And I was one of those fools, and yes, I'm using the word fools, who had not seen not one frame of Game of Thrones. And I marathoned it. And I There's lied, a lot of you out there. Not one frame. And I marathoned it and I live tweeted the entire series in one week. I watched all seasons in one week. Wow. Yes, I needed lots of therapy <laughs> while watching it. Wow. But, but, you know, early on, without knowing what would happen with your character, I was very protective of him. He was easily one of my favorites. And I kept going, nothing better happened to my boy Dinklage. Um, what has that role done for your career? Because I imagine 
it, a lot of people felt that way about about that character. I mean, it was just so transformative for you, I think. Yeah, well, thanks for watching it. I hope your eyes are not still aching from all that watching. I've done that a few times <laughs> with some shows when I had some time in my hands and the pandemic definitely gave us some time to, to watch stuff. So th thank you. I still get a lot of people in the street going, I never watched that show. They like to make a statement to me, like they're proud of it or something. Right. They're like, you were in Game of Thrones. Yes, I never watched it. Okay. Um, uh, they have, people love doing that on the street. It's very strange. Um, but no, I, I, I love that character. That was not only was it a great show, it was like 10 years of my life. So anybody who does a long running TV show will tell you it's sort of, it's just interwoven. Life and work are, are one and the same because you're, working with familiar people for so long. But the character was so smart and so funny. He was definitely, the, um, it, he, he provided a certain amount of relief from all the ongoings and a certain commentary upon the ongoings that everybody sort of can relate to in a humorous way. I'm friends with your mother. I'm here to help. Don't eat the help. <laughs> if you have a, a, a humorous character, he's often just that. He or she is just that role. But the, the writers, David and Dan, David Benioff and Dan Weiss, they made him so, so complicated on top of all that. He wasn't just the, the, the comic sidekick. He, he was a really complicated character. And I loved the opportunity to explore his changes because he's the way he started from season one was not who he was at the end. Yeah. Do you think that the success of that series and the success of that role in particular um, made this town see you in a different way? Well, uh, hopefully, I mean, it definitely made people see me and I, 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 I can't do it any other way than the way I do it. So maybe they got something out of it. Uh, hopefully a humanity um, that perhaps wasn't always the case, especially in the fantasy genre, mm. you know, where dwarves and people, are, they're not real. They're like more like creatures than human beings. Mm -hmm. And I had that prejudice going into the show before they told me about the character, but that prejudice of being creature-like and being mystical or whatever it is exists in a lot of fiction. And I mean, Thank you, Snow White. Um, you know, I find it interesting that they're very, and I, I mean, all due respect to everybody involved, but they, they're they very proud of the latest Snow White being a Latino actress. And she's incredible. She's wonderful, and I'm sure. But, but it's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I, I'm very curious to see what they're going to do there. Mm. Uh, so we just have to understand all aspects of, of everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Cyrano is amazing. You know, I first saw it months ago. And when I saw it, I, I said yes to so many things. I want to start with your performance. What was it about this story that really called to you and spoke to you as an actor? Um, his complexity. It was never on my radar until Erica Schmidt uh, had this great adaptation for it. Um, she got rid of the nose and added songs. Roxanne. What am I supposed to say? Words are only glass on a string. I just thought that was a really smart way in to the piece that had never been done before. 
Because what is there in our nose, mainly for is nose. Mm -hmm. So what are you left with when you take it away? You're left with the human experience that everybody goes through. And you should get rid of like the theatricality of that fake nose, which often was the case, you know. It's a handsome actor and a fake nose. What is yeah. what is he what is he graping about? You know, yeah. he doesn't he has he doesn't have a hard life. Um, uh, how come he feels unworthy of love? I mean, I I understood the poetry of it and the beautiful writing, but just on a personal level, I never connected to it until Erica um, stripped it down a bit to its bare essentials. Speaking of Erica Schmidt, she's not only your collaborator in the film as a screenwriter but she's your wife too. Tell us what it was like working with your partner and who approached whom first on doing this particular project. Uh, it's been great. We've, we've, we've worked on a number of uh, theater pieces in the past before. Um, it's great to have that familiarity, that way we understand the, the way each other works. And obviously you have that shorthand and communication. You don't have to really small talk. You can just get straight to the work. Um, and there's a lot of that on Cyrano, Joe Wright, and Haley Bennett, our partners, uh, Aaron and Bryce Desner, they're our composers, our twin brothers, Matt Berninger and Corinne Besser, the lyricists, our partners. Um, so it was a real family affair mm -hmm. on this one. Mm -hmm. So was this uh, her saying, honey, let's do this? Or are you saying, honey, let's do this? Oh, I, I, I beg for the part. She didn't write it with me in mind, truly. Uh, but... When she, when I, when I witnessed the pieces coming together, uh, I really started to fall in love with the part that she created, and I sort of begged. I really unbended knee. I was like, "Can you, I, I please? Can I just? Can I just make an attempt to play this role, and then, and then you can be honest with me." Mm -hmm. I, I lobbied for the part because we had done readings in our home with the composers and other actors, and I was just an actor in the room, there to to, to read a part. Truly, that's what you do. With a lot of films and, and theater, you, you get friends of yours in, a, in, a, in a, somebody's house and you read through the script with no intention of playing the roles, just to hear the, just for your, your friend, the writer, to hear it out loud if it's working. And that's what I did with this um, and continued to do with it until, until she cast me. <laughs> I'm glad that worked out for you. Yeah. You know, you um, touched on this, I think, a little bit earlier in our conversation. But the other thing that I really loved about this film was the diversity and, and in particular, the diversity without explanation in this film. And that feels very important and like something that we have to acknowledge. What was the conversation like on set with, with you and the other actors? Did you guys discuss that while filming or, or was this just um, maybe even a way to communicate to this industry, this is what we should expect out of work like this. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie and it's also a musical. So it's a fantasia on real life. Someone my size couldn't be in the military in real life. Mm. My size, I'm 52 years old. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a fantasy already right there. Mm. So in, in, in movies, you should feel free to do anything you want especially with casting. And if you, if you, if you are just limited to this small box, then, then like we spoke about with the pretty romantic leads and you're just limiting the possibilities um, and talent comes first. Um, and Kelvin, for example, I mean, he's one of the most brilliant young actors and my God, he can sing. If I close my eyes, maybe I'll see you there. One more.
saw that movie Waves he did yeah. a few years ago and I could not shake that movie and his performance in that movie. So when he was cast in this film, I was just absolutely thrilled. Um, and it's interesting because what Eric had, had done with that character, Christian is often played as adult, not as an adult, as adult, D-O-L-T, and an idiot and, and, and unintelligent. And I, do, I think that's a misrepresentation uh, of that character. I think he's just open-hearted. And um, I think that can be misconstrued as naive, which then would mean not intelligent. But Christian is the only one who has the intelligence to uh, not put himself in front of love. Mm. When he finds out that Cyrano's in love with Roxanne, he steps away from it. That's not emotional intelligence. I don't know what is. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a brilliantly complicated role. And what Kelvin did with it is, is, is amazing. Yeah, no, he's really great in this. And also, like you said, the casting is brilliant because Kelvin Harrison Jr., of course, is a black actor and normally Christian is portrayed by a white actor. So, you know, kudos for that casting. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a no-brainer <laughs> for me. <laughs> you just cast the most talented people. It doesn't matter how tall, how short, what race, my God. It doesn't, it's not what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously within reason, if if it's like a historical piece, you know, you have to obviously adhere to the certain realities of life, but with a a fiction piece, with a musical, especially the world's your oyster in terms of casting Mm. and the stories you tell. Mm. Yeah. Before I let you go, what does it take for you to say yes at this point in your career? What types of things um, excite you? Boy, that's a really good question. You know, I'm, I'm excited by, I'm, I have this production company now for a few years and I'm excited about being in on the ground floor and developing material, not griping as an actor about not getting to be acting movies I want, but creating them with, with great writers and great directors. And it's a common thing for when the actors get older, they they step behind the camera um, uh, and want to have more creative control over things. Not waiting for the phone to ring, but calling people and saying, hey, you want to be in this movie? That's what's exciting. Mm. I love all of that. Peter Dinklage, thank you so much for doing this today. This was an absolute treat. Thank you so much. Man, I love when actors go behind the camera. So I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what Peter's production company does and what kind of projects they come out with. Guys, that was a wrap on my first show. I'm so excited. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts and rate us because that really goes a long way. Talk soon. Next week on Close Up, we talk with someone who's always been behind the camera, who is up for his 11th Oscar nomination, Steven Spielberg. And in his new film, he goes where he's never gone before. I always said that I've never done a musical, I've never done a Western. And I really have much more interest in in musical idiom than I do in Westerns. How he finally brought his West Side Story dreams to life and what Rachel Zegler learned from being on set with him. I knew that I wanted to work with you when I left every single audition saying, if that's it, that's fine. I've had this and that's great. We talk West Side Story and all things Spielberg. That's next time on Close Up. 
Close Up is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Vika Aronson, Carrie Ann Thomas, and David Toledo, with help from Matt Wolf, Josh Cohan, Brenda Salinas Baker, Ariel Chester, Mary Pat Thompson, Elizabeth Russo, and Stacia Dashishku. Lakia Brown is our senior producer, and Liz Alessi is our executive producer. 